Wasn't that good? So I learned something this morning. Number one, we, that is our first virtual choir performance that we've had. And they did a wonderful job, and I want to thank Will, and I want to thank the choir for coming. They, did, they came a couple of Wednesday nights ago and recorded that right out there where y'all are sitting. And so that was really, really cool. Uh, but I learned something this morning that I didn't know, and that is that the song was arranged by Tom Fetke, and any of you who've sung before, you might recognize that name, but more importantly, at least from my perspective, is that it was the words of that song were written by Linda Lee Johnson. And I didn't really take a lot of note of that in the past, but Linda Lee Johnson happens to be the older sister of our own Jim Lee, who sits over here and plays the trombone, of all things. So I sang that song in college and was just transfixed by it uh, back then, you know, 123 years ago when I was in college. And, and it was just the beauty of the song just overwhelmed me, even at that point, never realizing that, that obviously that, that at one point I would be able to serve alongside the, the brother of the, the lady who penned the words to that song, who ultimately got the words from the text that we are going to be looking at this morning, which comes from Psalm 8. So if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them, turn with me once again to the Psalms and specifically to Psalm 8. Now, you know, uh, back in July, many of you remember I was on sabbatical and my wife and I had one week during that sabbatical time that we were away that we were able to go up to western North Carolina and we went up into that part of the country and, and kind of got to do a little hiking. We went to the DuPont uh, State Forest up there. And uh, we found ourselves hiking sort of through some trails. We found ourselves on a really dark, narrow trail where the tree covering was so dense. If you've ever done that before, you know, even though it's bright sunshine outside, it was a very dark trail. We were, it was, it was truly dark, took our sunglasses off and everything to be able to see. But as we made our way to the end of that trail, suddenly it just opened up. And the light started, you could see the sun, and the cobalt blue sky was out in front of us, and then the white of the water was rushing over this beautiful cascade of rocks to 150 feet below. It was the most beautiful waterfall that we had ever seen, and it was like you had just come through this dark trail to suddenly view the splendor of God's majesty right in front of you with this waterfall. What I want you to know is that Psalm 8 is just like that. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 3 and then Psalm 4. And if you went ahead and went back and read Psalm 5, 6, and 7 over the last week, you'll know that David has been in a really dark tunnel. He's been up against a lot of opposition. He has struggled with a lot of things. People have come up themselves against him. He's struggling with things that are happening to him. He's been crying out to God from the depths of his soul. He's been in this dark tunnel of a place and then all of a sudden it comes out and you have Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is really like a breath of fresh air. It's, it's a breathtaking view. It's just like that waterfall. It just stuns you with its beauty. I like the way that Derek Kidner has written about it. He says Psalm 8 is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. Celebrating as it does the glory and the grace of God, rehearsing who He is and what He has done and relating us and our world to Him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. That's a wonderful description of Psalm 8. This psalm was, was obviously meant to be sung 
by a choir, and we know that because of the superscription that comes right over the top of it. It tells us that this psalm was written by David and it was written to the chief musician, or as the ESV, may, you may see it written there, it was to the choir master. So it was designed, it was written to be sung. And it was also written to be played, as the New King James says, on the instrument of Gath, or again, as the ESV translates it, according to the Giddeth. Now, we have no idea exactly what the Giddeth is. It may have been an instrument from Gath, or it could also, some interpret it to be based upon a popular tune that would have come from Gath. Either way, what we know is that it is the first psalm, it's the first hymn of praise in the Psalter that we come across, Psalm 8. And as C.S. Lewis has written, it is a short, exquisite lyric. So we've already heard the song sung by our choir this morning. Let's read it together because it is truly a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Begin, begin with me there. We'll read the, the, the title once more and then go with verse 1. It says, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glories above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this opportunity that we have been given to come to this place to worship you here. We are thankful for those who have joined us online and are there with their Bibles open at home. We are grateful, Lord, for the opportunity to open our scriptures and to know that this is words that you, by your Holy Spirit, have, have written and ordained that we would be able to study and to think about. And I pray that as we do that today, that you would open our minds. Your glory should not only fill the heavens, but it should fill us and fill our thoughts. And I pray that you would help us to be able to do that today. And Lord, as I so often pray, help us to drive out the distractions, the things that are barking in our ears and constantly trying to get our attention. Help us. Help us, O oh Lord, to be able to keep those things at bay long enough for us to be able to concentrate on what you would say to us. And strengthen us to be the men, women, boys, and girls that you've called us to be. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So in this psalm, you'll notice right away that the first and last verses are identical. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, this repetition at, at verse 1 and then again saying the same thing there in verse 9 
is a poetic device in Hebrew that's called inclusio. Sometimes it's referred to as bracketing. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as bookending. I like to talk about it this way. It's really a device that's used as packaging. In, in other words, I, I see it as, as, as David's way of wrapping the material that he's going to present to us in such a way that he wants to draw our attention to what he talks about in verse 1 and verse 9, which is the majesty, the excellence, the glory of the name of God. And really what he wants to do is specifically, David doesn't tell us to do anything. And if you notice, there's no, there's no commands given inside this psalm. He doesn't tell us to do anything, but he's wanting to do something in us through what he tells us. He's wanting to draw our attention to this awesome, splendid, stupendous, excellent nature of God so that we might worship Him with everything that we have. In fact, I believe that is exactly what David wants to do. He wants to drive us to worship the God that he describes here in Psalm 8. Now, I've provided you with an outline today that's, that's a little simple. Sometimes I like to do this, just give you simple words. Simple words, hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this text. And so I've done that today. And, and so the very first hook, the first word that I want you to notice today is just simply this word. It's adoration. Adoration. David declares the majestic excellence of the name of God at the front and the back of this psalm, as I said, so that he can drive us to worship, to drive us to adore God. Now, I want to point out something that we've noted before, but I think it bears repeating here. You'll notice that in the English translations that verse 1 and verse 9 have this really nice poetic sounding um, tone to it. it, it it's, it's beautiful, if, even if it's somewhat redundant. David says, O oh Lord, our Lord. But what we need to remember is that we are reading an English translation of the Hebrew text. And in the Hebrew text, these two words are not the same. In fact, even our English translations differentiate between the differences here by how it presents the word for us. Even though it's the same word, Lord, it's presented differently. In our English translations, the first Lord that we see there, you'll notice it's in all caps, all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D. That signifies that the first word in the Hebrew text is the name of God, the name Yahweh. Now, remember, God revealed his personal name to Moses and to the children of Israel when he delivered them from Egyptian slavery. And the name Yahweh literally means I am who I am. Or it could also mean I will be who I am or I am who I will be. And, and what God's self-revelation of his name communicates to us is that God is self-existing. He is the one who, who is absolutely complete in himself. He needs nothing from outside to make him complete. He is complete. He is who he is. And because he is who he is, we know that from the Genesis account, he is the all-powerful creating one. He is the one who himself is uncreated, but who spoke in all of the universe. Everything came into existence as a result of his creative power. And so that's the, that's the first word. It's the name of God, O Lord. And then the second Lord that's there, you'll notice it's different. It's not all capital letters. And, and it is the English translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. 
And, and the Adonai there is, is a, means, it means Lord, it means ruler, it means king, it, it, master over something. And so we could legitimately translate verse 1 and verse 9 of Psalm 8, even though it would be a little less poetic sounding, we could say this, O Yahweh, our king, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So understand this, David is declaring the excellence and the majesty of the name of God. And also he's declaring his sovereignty throughout the earth. But as the rest of verse 1 makes clear, David declares that the Lord's name is majestic not only throughout the earth, but that his glory and his splendor extends to the farthest reaches of the heavens. In other words, from the farthest corner in, in the earth to the farthest extent of the universe, Yahweh rules over it all. His, his name is magnificent from the least corner in the darkest place on earth to the darkest farthest limits of the universe. Yahweh is king. So as, as one writer has put it, what becomes obvious is that David has packaged this psalm by stating that to us twice at the front and the back. He's packaged it in such a way so as to excite us over the majesty of God and to incite us to worship him. He's, he's describing the vast nature of who God is so that he might inflame our hearts to worship this Lord and King. So how does he do that? How does David arouse our adoration and how does he promote the praise of Yahweh? Well, the first thing that David does is point out something ironic to us. In fact, it's a contradictory picture. That's the second word that I've given you on your outline. The second hook that I want you to note is the word contradiction. Contradiction. Now, by contradiction, I do not mean that David, his words do not agree with one another. That's not what I mean by contradiction. What I mean is that David presents us with a picture in verse 2 that's paradoxical. It's, it's an ironic picture. It's a picture that when we first look at it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And it's a picture that, that grabs your attention and it forces you to reckon with it because it goes counter to what you might immediately think. David says in verse 2, speaking to the Lord, he says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, think about that for just a minute. On the one hand, you have these enemies of God, these, these people that are looking to get revenge against God. That's what, he, that's what David's describing. In other words, they're looking for a fight. Dale Ralph Davis, he, he colorfully describes this group of people as being hairy-chested brutes who flex their muscles and show off their tattoos. They're proud of themselves and they are ready for a fight. On the other hand, David describes helpless babies, nursing infants who are completely dependent upon the care and the protection of their mothers. Now, consider that picture and let me ask you, who wins a fight between these two groups? If they go to battle, who's going to win? I mean, is it the sword-wielding, club-carrying, God-cursing bullies? Or is it the cooing, babbling, nursing toddlers? Well, notice David says, 
that it is through the utterances of those seemingly insignificant babies and infants that strength has been ordained and established. And that such strength has overcome and silenced and stilled the advance of those who are enemies of God. To quote Davis again, he says, what seems inconsequential has overwhelmed what is mighty. Now, such a picture forces you to stop and take note of it, doesn't it? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't go according to what we would think would be the way things would happen. It forces you to contemplate the reality of such a a scene because it's completely outside of what we would normally think how God would do things. And yet, what we come to realize is that that's exactly how God always does things. This is his modus operandi. This is his way of operating in the world. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul says that God uses the weak things to shame the strong. And he does that so that all flesh, when it glories, will not glory in itself, but will glory in him. David tells us the exact same thing here in Psalm 8. What David is saying is, is that the the Almighty God, the praise of Him on the lips of children is more powerful than the mightiest rebellion that comes and rises up against God. And such a seemingly contradictory and and really attention-grabbing revelation should be a strong motivating factor that ought to drive us to praise and to adore that God. Now, before I leave verse 2, let me just point out to you that in the New Testament, when Jesus arrived into Jerusalem for that final time following his triumphal entry, he was in the temple area, and there were some children there in the temple area, and they were praising him. In fact, those children were saying to him, Hosanna to the son of David, and that riled up the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders. And they were so angry that they began to criticize Jesus for why he was allowing them to do that. And Jesus said to them, according to Matthew 21, verse 16, he looked at those religious bullies who were flexing their muscles. And Jesus says, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. See, what becomes obvious is those children knew who the king was. Those children knew better than even the most learned and wise men, religious men in Israel. They knew who would be properly praised, and they did so. Proving once more that what seems inconsequential has been overwhelmed by what is mighty. So that contradiction... That irony, that paradoxical nature of the picture here in verse 2, that's what David paints and is designed to really draw us to adore and to worship the Lord our King. But but he's not done. In fact, David's desire is, as I said, to excite us about the majesty and to incite us to worship the Lord. So what he does is he changes our view. He, he, He moves our attention from nursing babies to outer space. In fact, that gives us the next word, the next hook on our outline. It's the third point there is consideration. Consideration. David says in verse 3, When I consider 
your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. You know, as a shepherd boy, David, as he was out there in those fields keeping watch over his father's sheep, I'm confident that there were countless nights that he spent out there. And he would look up into those dark sky and he would see what was a countless number of stars twinkling back at him. And I can only imagine in a time that was not, he had no filtration of, of, of other lights from, from street lamps and from homes to, to kind of drown it out. I can only imagine that it looked like just countless little diamonds on a black velvet backdrop. But as amazing as that view that David would have had was what he could not have known, but what later inventions would have revealed is that there were literally hundreds of billions of stars twinkling in that night sky. In fact, in his book on prayer, Philip Yancey describes the vastness of the universe this way. Listen, he says, the Milky Way galaxy, if it were the size of the entire continent of North America, then our little solar system would fit in a coffee cup. If the Milky Way were the size of the North American continent, our little galaxy would fit in the size of a coffee cup. Now, think about that, if you can, and then get your mind around this. The Milky Way is one of only potentially 100 billion such galaxies. In fact, the universe is so expansive that it is estimated that a message sent at the speed of light from one edge to the other, traveling at the speed of light, that message would take 15 billion years to get from one side to the other. My mind cannot comprehend that. I cannot get my mind wrapped around that kind of massive space. Which is exactly what I believe David wants us to do. When I consider it, when I comprehend it, when I try to think about it, when I, when I try to get my mind wrapped around something like that, I'm astounded. Why? Because you're having to reckon with the vastness of this universe, but more importantly, you are having to reckon with who stands behind it all. Who was the one who created all of that and stretched it, as the scriptures say, into its place? In fact, notice that David doesn't describe the universe as the heavens. Did you see that? No. He describes it as your heavens. Why is it God's heavens? Because God is the one who created it. In fact, David said, it is the work of your fingers. Gerald Wilson, he writes that all of this wondrous display of God's creative work spun off the tips of his fingers without him even breaking a sweat. Back in 1960, the great singer Mahalia Jackson recorded a song entitled Somebody Bigger Than You and I. If you hadn't listened to it, go home and put it on YouTube, search it up, listen to it. 
you won't find a better singer than Mahalia Jackson to begin with. But then this song is really cool, too. There's a part of the song that says this. Who made the mountains? Who made the seas? Who made the river that flows to the sea? Who hung the moon in the starry sky? Somebody bigger than you and I. You know, I believe that when David looked up into that starry sky, what he saw forced him to come to the conclusion that there was somebody bigger than you and me up there whose fingers had done all of this massive work. And it led him to ask a question, a very important one. In fact, the fourth point, the fourth hook that I want you to think about this morning is this. There's an interrogation that begins to take place. It's interrogation. David looks at the massiveness of what he sees. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of? The son of man that you would visit him. Or as the ESV says, the son of man that you would care about him. David absolutely realized, as one writer has put it, that as humans, we are little more than a mere pinch of dust scattered across the surface of a nondescript planet. And consequently, he wants to know, how can a God who is so majestic and so powerful, a God who created such a massive universe so that it defies mankind's ability to even comprehend How can such a God even notice something as insignificant and as inconsequential and as unimportant as man? You know, as I considered David's question, it occurred to me that we don't typically think that way. That's not the way that we typically think. In fact, I propose that it is our tendency as mankind to to typically think big thoughts about ourselves and relatively small thoughts about God. In other words, we have the constant tendency to put ourselves at the center of our universe, and we really think that it all revolves around us. We think that we're the ones in charge. We think we're the ones that are making all the decisions, and that if it is to be, it's going to be up to me, and I've got to be the one who pilots my own ship and makes my own path. We actually think that our happiness is the most important thing. And pursuing our own goals and our own dreams, that's exactly what is the most important thing to us. And if we were to ever doubt that, all we would really need to do is check our checkbooks. Look at our credit card receipts. Check our calendars and find out all the things that we make time to do. And really, look at all the things that we don't make time to do. And the truth of that statement that we tend to think really big thoughts about us and little thoughts about God will hit us right in the face. But according to David, a simple trip outside at night to look up at the stars can change that viewpoint. But not the way that you might think. You see, there are some who might look at the infinitesimal nature of humanity and conclude that man is nothing more than a mere speck of dust floating on a rock that spins around in the universe. And such an observation might cause them to conclude that there is nothing important about man whatsoever, that he doesn't really matter, 
that his life and his existence are not important. That's the way a lot of folks really think. We're just here for a little while. We don't know why. We came by random chance. We'll leave the same way. We really don't matter. What I want you to know is that is not the way that David saw it. David did not diminish the magnificence of God and the vastness of his universe, but neither did he incorrectly conclude that he didn't matter to God. In fact, that is what stops David in his tracks. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you would even take note of him and remember him. David's interrogative question really shows that he recognized he did matter to God. And so it's really less of a question and more of a declaration. What a God. What a God that would notice and remember something as insignificant as me. James Johnston writes this. He says, it's healthy to gaze at the vast beauty of the night sky and feel small. The greatest mystery, though, is not that I am so small, but that God's love is so big. He is mindful of men and women who are microscopic specks in the universe. He cares for you and for me. And that's an amazing thought. And it leads me to the final hook today. The last word on your outline is this. The fifth point is this. It's explanation. And admittedly, this one's going to take the longest. So just hang with me. Explanation, right? David recognizes the great mystery of God's great love for tiny people. He's obviously amazed by the care that the creator of the universe shows for us. But then David examines what he, he knows to be true and he explains how God's care should be understood. And he does that from verses 5 through 8. Let me read them for you again. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Let me just point out very quickly some significant details that David alerts us to with regard to humanity in these verses. First of all, like everything else in this universe, we realize that mankind is divinely created. We are divinely created. David recognized that truth for what is recorded for us in Genesis 2 verse 7. If you'll go back and read that, you'll find that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and, and man became a living being. Brothers and sisters, we did not just suddenly come up from the dust of the ground on our own by some random chance. No, we are divinely created by God. Secondly, note that mankind was divinely created to have dignity. David tells us that we were created a little lower than the angels, or as the ESV translates it, a little lower than the heavenly beings. And what that means is that though we are formed from the dust of the earth, we are not mere animals. We have been divinely created and given a unique and exalted position in God's created world. And furthermore, David tells us that we have been crowned with glory and honor. Back in verse 1, we find that the glory and honor of God is what fills the earth. And so as a consequence, what, what, what I believe David is saying here is that we have been created with dignity because we have been created in God's image. 
Our dignity, the glory and the honor that we've been crowned with comes as a result of the fact that we are the image bearers of God. That's exactly what Genesis 1.26 tells us. There we read that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so our dignity and our glory and our honor is directly tied to the fact that we are created in God's image, that we bear the image of God throughout this universe. And that means that there are some very important points of application that we need to understand if that's true. And I believe that it absolutely is. You see, because human beings are the image bearers of God, because we have been specially created and given a special position in God's creation, then every human being, every human life that God has created is special and is deserving of respect and dignity. Brothers and sisters, as beings created in God's image, each and every person should be treated with value and with respect. As John Piper has put it, you cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating his supreme creation with contempt. And that is why God cares about injustice. It is why his word condemns the mistreatment of one group of people by another group of people. And why we as Christians must clearly condemn such actions. It's because we believe that the scriptures teach that all humanity has been created in the image of God and is therefore deserving of respect and dignity. That's also why Christians must stand against abortion. You cannot treat an unborn human life with disregard, dismembering it from its mother's womb and give it the respect and the dignity that it deserves as a human life created in the image of God. To say that such a life, simply because it has not yet been born, is insignificant and of no value is to fail to recognize the truth that is communicated to us here in this psalm. As David makes clear... From all appearances, no human life should matter to God. In the scope of the universe, all of us appear to be insignificant and of no value. But God has taken note of us. He is mindful of us and he cares for us. And as such, we should be mindful of the unborn and to care for them because they too are created in the image of God. To quote Piper once more, you cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating his supreme creation with contempt. Mankind has been divinely created by God and we have been created with dignity. But note finally, and briefly, we have been created for dominion. David says that all things have been put under man's feet and that we have been given dominion over them. Sheep, oxen, beasts, fields of the, uh, birds of the field, fish of the sea, all of them have been placed under our dominion. David obviously was familiar with his Bible in Genesis 1.26 when after God said, let us create man in our own image, he goes on to say this, and let's give him dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the, over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So when we consider all that David writes here from verses 5 through 8, we recognize that his words serve as an explanation of how God is mindful of man and how God has remembered man and has taken account of him. And with that, David brings us back full circle, back to the words from which he began. O oh Lord, our Lord, 
How excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the wrapping is, is now complete. And with it, David urges us, he, he pushes us, he inflames us to worship and adore Yahweh the King. Now, without a doubt, this is absolutely a beautiful psalm. And as I mentioned at the outset, it is like a massive, majestic, beautiful waterfall in the middle of a dark forest. But there's a problem with it. There's a problem presented for us in this text. And if we go past it too quickly, we will miss something very important. You see, David declares what the book of Genesis declares, and that is that mankind has been, to get, been given dominion over all things, that all things have been placed under his feet. And that's really the authority and the rule that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were given dominion over everything. Everything was under their care. But that authority has long since been taken away. Because of their rebellion against God, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. And as a result of their sin, all of creation was thrown into disarray. Every human being who's been born since then has been born with a selfish nature that's been both sinful and rebellious, causing us to worship ourselves rather than the one creator who is God. Not only that, but all of creation has been thrown into disarray as well. According to Romans 8, verse 22, it is like a, it, the, the whole earth is like a woman who is groaning under the labors of birth pangs. So the problem with what David tells us here in Psalm 8 is that all things are not under our feet. All things are not there, as he describes. All of creation is not under our control the way that God intended. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, the writer of Hebrews picked up on that exact thing. And when he gets and he's introducing his whole point in Hebrews at the opening part, the introduction to Hebrews, he points his readers to the solution to the problem that we read there in Psalm 8. He takes the words of David here, the writer of Hebrews does, and then he, he quotes them back. He says in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 6, he says, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you take care of him, that you've made him a little lower than the angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. The writer of Hebrews recognizes that that's not currently the way that things are, and then he explains, though, how Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfills what David writes about there in Psalm 8. The writer of Hebrews says, beginning in Hebrews 2, verse 9, he says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You see, once again, we see God's modus operandi. God goes back to, to using something that was dismissed and shameful as a way to exalt himself. He uses the cross, a, a, a thing of shame, as a way to bring glory to himself and to his son. And when the world looked at Christ so foolishly and helplessly and weak, unworthy of adoration, hanging there on that cross, it was actually in that moment that he became the most beautiful. God displayed His majesty most fully and brightly to the world 
in that way. In fact, to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 25, he says the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what that tells us is that while we are God's image bearers who reflect the glory of God, our failure to live up to God's standard demands that we look to Christ who is the Son of Man who fully reflects that glory far more perfectly than any of us ever could. And that is what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that in light of Christ's sacrifice and the glorious gospel that it secures he tells us in Hebrews 3 verse 1 therefore you who share in a heavenly calling fix your thoughts on Jesus. Isn't that exactly what David is doing in Psalm 8? He's wanting us to fix our thoughts on the majesty of God. And when we do, we cannot sidestep the fact that our thoughts also go to Jesus Christ, the one whom he has sent, who will put everything into place. Look, when we put our, our faith in Jesus, we are blessed with the wonderful hope that our sin, which has separated us from God, has been finally dealt with and is no longer held to our account. And furthermore, we hold to the promise that is written for us in 2 Timothy 2.12 that all who are in Christ will one day reign with him. God's loving care for mankind is fully displayed in the sending of his son. To be our Savior. That's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence. And you didn't think I was ever going to get there. My sermon in a sentence is this. When we read Psalm 8 and we read about its fulfillment in Jesus, we come away with this. His creation of the universe and his care of humanity should cause your soul to burst forth in humble adoration of the majestic God who loved you enough to send his son to be your Savior. I want you to know, if we really and truly read Psalm 8 aright, we'll walk away praying that little simple prayer that we all learned as kids and we taught our kids. You could summarize Psalm 8 this way. God is great. God is good. He's great in that he created everything. From the, from the farthest extent of the universe down to the most microscopic Thing that you can imagine. God created it all. And he created you. And he created you for a relationship with him. God is great. And he's also good. Because you and me who have failed to live up to that which we were created to be and deserving of being erased and wiped off the face of the earth because we're insignificant and small God says, no, you are so important that I sent my son Jesus, my one and only son, to die in your place upon a cross so that your sins might be forgiven. And that relationship that has been severed because of your sin be closed, the gap be closed, and you can now be in my presence. God is great, yes, but God is good. What is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? And when you come away realizing just how great God is and just how good God has been, then how can you not say, 
Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for what you've done for us. We, are, we stand in awe of that which is visible to us each and every day. And if we're, we're, we're to, to take time to consider the universe and your creation, the works of your fingers, all of us would clasp our hands over our mouths and we would have to sit and be quiet because we have nothing that we can say. You are great, but you are so good. You've been good to me. You've been good to my brothers and sisters that are here. There are those who are listening right now, maybe some in this room, but certainly I believe that there are others who, are, who may come across this sermon at a later date, some who may be listening right now, who do not recognize just how good you've been. In their minds, they're the ones at the center of their own universe. They don't recognize because of their sin. They stand condemned. My prayer is, is that today they would fully come to understand how good you are through what you have done through Jesus. So my prayer is today, Lord, that through the work of your Holy Spirit, bringing conviction, drawing those who do not have a relationship to you, that they would truly come to know you as their Lord and Savior. That they would sing, just as we have sung and praised this morning, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic and excellent is your name. Lord, for those of us that have been in a dark tunnel, struggling through some very difficult places in life, Lord, the truth is we may go back into some of those dark places, but let us go with the knowledge that you are a great God who loves us and is good to us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.